Welcome back, Inebriites. This is Andy again, and uh, I'm excited today because I feel like we haven't had an author on in a long time. Um, and we always try to mix it up, and we tend to get lots of musicians, so it's, it's great to have an author on. Uh, today, I am joined by Mitali Perkins, the author of Rickshaw Girl, which um, apparently was um, picked by the New York Public Library as one of the best 100 children's books in the past 100 years. Um, that's a pretty great you know title to get yeah it was a good title of course behind the scenes one of my good friends was on the committee oh. <laughs> <laughs> little nepotism never killed anybody we'll take the title and run with it it sounded good yeah um so you kind of like came across my radar um they're doing pr for i thought with the the movie so there's a movie version of this did it is my I didn't do a lot of research. I'm not going to lie, um, but it came out in 2021. Yeah, it came out in 2021. And of course, it had a soft launch in the theaters. It was an adaptation of my novel because it was the middle of the pandemic. But um, now it's on streaming and I think it's oh, being okay. more widely seen. It's just been launched on Amazon uh, on Prime and also Apple TV and several other streaming platforms. So people are seeing it. Yeah, that explains why they're doing more PR for it then. Um, but so I, I get lots and lots and lots of PR notices and uh, I click the trailer and I'm like, wow, it looks really pretty. Like it's very yeah. colorful and beautiful art um, and seem to kind of have like a, a, a theme that we see a lot. The, the, the young lady who poses as a male to kind of like fit in or, or, or get a job or, or do what is, can you give us just kind of like a rundown of the book? Yeah, uh, well, the book was, uh, it's a its a shorter, more simpler story than the movie. Um, the producer and the writers of the movie made it into a, a more of a young adult novel. The book is a chapter book, but it's a really, the, essentially the core story is the same. It's a girl in a patriarchal society who is trying to figure out a way to help her family, but there's no real way to work for her to make money, which was the case um, for my mom, my grandmother. They all grew up in the villages of Bangladesh. Very talented women, but really no way to contribute to the economy. And so this girl's trying to figure out a way, and she's also an artist. So she loves art, and art contributing to the family economy doesn't seem like a possibility for her at all. And that theme is carried on in um, into the movie as well, where she figures out a way for for her to be able to do both, which is, which is really a, a miracle. And I mean, I come from that culture myself, and so... I know telling your parents that you're going to be an artist as a full-time career is not something my immigrant parents were that excited about. So <laughs> I, I did write that part of myself into that story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to say, like, my parents actually were very supportive um, of that. But so many parents aren't. And what, I think one of the things that always bothers me the most is the idea of a fallback. Like, oh, have mm -hmm. a fallback. How do you feel about that? Because I've talked to a few musicians that were like, no, no, I think a fallback's good. But I feel like it it prevents you from really going full bore for, for your goal. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think I can see both sides of that, of that discussion. I know that, you know, the, the younger people call it side hustles. You know, they have all these things going on, these different streams. And, the, and some of my younger friends feels like it feeds their, those having – Having multiple streams of um, whether it whether it be economic or or creative actually feeds 
feeds each other. So um, there's that argument. For me, I, um, I, you know, I've had the fallback of my husband who's, <laughs> who was financially fall, carrying the fallback. But, um, but I did go all in when my second novel was rejected by 22 different publishers. And it took 11 years between my first book and my second novel. And at that point, I decided if I'm never, if I'm not going to give up giving this much opposition, maybe I should be all in. And there was something psychological that happened when I said, now I'm all in. This is, I'm just going to go for it. Give it, give it everything I've got, this career of writing stories for young people. And I just, I think there was something about that single-minded passion that did serve. It was risky. It was risky. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, I get it. Um, well, especially because I had immigrant parents who sacrificed a lot to come here, you know, and so they wanted us to be financially successful because they sacrificed financially for us. So it's a little bit more tricky when you have parents that did so much to help you get a great education and you don't want to. Yes, it felt very risky, but I'm I mean, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went all in. Do yeah. you feel like they saw that as kind of like you throwing away that opportunity? I think at first, uh, at first, yeah, they, I was the third of three girls, you know, in a very sun focused culture. So everybody Mm -hmm. cried when I was born and I'm like, Oh, another girl. Oh, Oh. yeah, that's all right. I, uh, my dad always said, this girl will be a blessing to the whole family. And I actually wrote that into rickshaw girl because there's two daughters in that book. And I got to have the dad say, this girl will be a blessing to the whole family. So my dad just always thought having daughters was the best. So there was that pressure of, you know, now we're here as three girls and um, they wanted us. I always say there were three career options. You could be an engineer as an Indian immigrant. I was born Mm -hmm. in India. Or you could be an engineer. You could be a doctor or Andy, you could be an engineer. That was your (laughs) third And so, yeah, at first my parents were like, you're not going to be able to sustain yourself financially as an artist. So they, and they were worried, but then I think bit by bit, they saw that it was my passion and that I was gaining some traction. So, and then now with the movie out based on my book, and I think about 10 years ago, my mom set up a Facebook page. That was my fan page of all of our relatives (laughs) actively managing that Facebook page that has 22 fans. (laughs) That's sweet though. It's sweet. They're very supportive. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a hard thing. I have, uh, I can't even call them kids. I mean, they're both adults now, but like, it's that hard line between I want them to be, you know, financially stable and not to struggle. And, you know, although, you know, but I mean, that's not real life, you know, I mean, everyone's going to have those pitfalls and whatnot. And so it's like, I really, my thing is like, I just want to be happy. And, you know, sometimes that comes in money and sometimes it doesn't. And, so yeah. it, it's really interesting to kind of see them navigate the landscape. And I just feel like they're already doing a better job than I did. <laughs> wow. Well, I think it was pretty black and white for us. You know, you're this or you're that. Like I'm saying, I think the younger generation has these multiple streams of who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, and they're, they feel they, my younger artist friends feel like, well, if I'm doing investing on the side and I'm learning about the stock market, or if I'm doing, uh, you know, setting up a little business and, and I'm doing my art. They, they have the, maybe they have like a wider view of their energy and passion and they're trying different things and they're experimenting. They're living in vans and they're driving across the country and they're doing nature photography or 
but they're feeling, I think they have a more integrated view of who they are. It's not just about who they are. This is what I do to make money, but this is who I am as a, a full expression of my, of my humanity. It's really refreshing. I think it's something we didn't have. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's less cookie cutter, you know, like mm-hmm. when I was younger, it's like you graduate, you go to college, you get married, you have a kid. And if you don't go to college then you're gonna be a loser. And now both of my kids kind of went through this phase where they're like, we're not sure what we want to do. And we don't want to just go into debt while we figure it out. And I'm like, I can't argue that like that's, and you know, they got, you know, day jobs and whatnot. And my youngest is now posting on uh, TikTok and getting commissions to do artwork through that. And I'm like, that's, that's great. You know? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think they have a lot more flexibility. They're not as, rigid about expectations on themselves and that that leaves room for more creativity right when you're not mm-hmm. it doesn't the stakes don't feel as high when the stakes are so high for us then you think oh if i get a rejection or if, if i get if i my book doesn't sell or my my record doesn't sell then i'm i'm never going to be a musician that just felt high they just they were really willing to experiment and take some punches and take some knocks and try some different things which serves i think really we can learn from them Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's totally where I ended up. You know, I have so many different revenue streams under my business and it's. You're sort of like the hero for that generation. (laughs) I've got five. five Let's not let's not throw the H word around at all. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So but I think with the movie, it's interesting, um, Andy, because I've written children's books or books for young adults and teens. I've written all kinds of novels. And there's a certain kind of person that's not impressed by that. They think, oh, I'm probably writing about bunny rabbits or it's not like a literary craft. But if you get into the world of writing for children, it's actually very complex. You have to craft a story within a certain within certain parameters and, and hold a reader's attention um, and so it's it's it can be a very high level craft task, but mm-hmm. it's looked down on in the world. People say, "Oh, you know, you write children's books." Oh, I I write children's books too. It, it's it's a very it seems like a, but then when the book became adapted into a film, all of a sudden there's all these like really important dudes, and they're <laughs> like, "Wow, your your book is in a made into a movie." That they're they're all of a sudden coming in my social media. All these people that didn't even think of me as a they sort of thought me as like thought of me as like a little fluffy stuffed animal in yeah. the art world, but now all of a sudden I'm in the art world. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to see how something that I've done my whole life, which is create stories for kids, which is a challenging craft, is not very looked looked on very highly in the world of art. It, it's it's interesting because I see a lot, a lot of children's book. Um, authors even locally here uh and some of it feels like i think i think people look at it as the individual reading isn't going to be as critical because they're a kid you know so it's kind of like a lower bar of entry which i hate saying because it's not true but i think people look at it that way which is where probably some of that comes from but then you think about like how impactful some of those books can be like dr seuss was like huge in my life you know in in my kids life i read it to my kids and you know hopefully they'll read them to their kids and it just goes on and on it's you know everyone can think of that book 
that they read as a, a kid or a young adult that like impacted them. Yeah, there's a there's a level of the of the child reading with their heart and their mind, which makes them maybe a little less discerning in terms of is this good or is this bad? But it also makes them incredibly open to your art and mm -hmm. to be shaped by your art. You know, it's because they don't have that adult cynicism of well, I can do better, whatever. But so it is a powerful it is a powerful vocation because you're you're shaping things that are deep inside, almost like a child learns a language better than an adult. In the mm -hmm. same way, I think children receive art in a way that is much more formative for them than an adult. And so, yes, maybe they're a little less like, well, I give this six on Rotten Tomatoes and here's yeah. why. Uh, but they also know a good story when they find one. And, mm -hmm. and I think we don't give them as much credit as uh, for being attuned to what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. I think that's something that there's an instinct in a child reader that also it, maybe they don't have the words to be as critical in a review, but they are critical. They're a hard audience. If you've ever tried to hold the attention of a child with a full story, that's a tough, that's a tough call. Yeah. Cause if they're not, they also kind of lose or not lose. They haven't gained that kind of social pleasantries where, They'll just be like, I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, it's dull. Yeah. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. They, they don't pull punches. Yeah. Especially yeah. teens. Teen, when, I write, when I write my teen novels, they're like, it's you very find teens long. harder than little kids? Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. I think because little kids have more of the gatekeepers to help them, the parent or the teacher, to read my picture books. But a teen's going to just come straight into that novel with their raw heart. You know, they're in the middle of their own hero's journeys. And they're, it's an unmediated encounter between the book and the teen. Mm -hmm. And they want something real. They want something that makes them feel. They want, they want something that is just going to connect with their own very intense hero's journey right then and there. And that's, I find that very challenging. So it's always wonderful when you get a, a note from a teen who says, I read your book three times or something. And you think something about your story resonated with their story and they found a deep connection. So I do have cherish those notes. Is it kind of um, like, I'm just trying to think of like how I've seen teen teenagers portrayed in movies and like it always or movies and books and comics and whatever. And it always bothered me. Because they always, I feel like, played them as little kids. They never accurately, like, to me, the most accurate portrayal of teenagers in movies would be Goonies. Hmm, interesting. You know, they swear, they know stuff, but they don't know a lot. They get into trouble. Like, to me, that's kind of, like, what my experience as, like, you know, preteen and teenager was, like, you wanted to be treated like an adult. You couldn't be treated like an adult, but you probably could have been treated like an adult more than people were treating you like an adult. If that makes any sense. Yes, it does. And that's a good example of a classic movie where it really was true to the teen voice, that movie. Yeah, it's hard to find. I think a lot of times adults forget what it's like to be a teenager and um, and yeah, how how much they can know and receive and experience and and how, how tolerant they are of mess in themselves and in other people. It's a really unique stage of life and we forget. So I love writing for teens because it does keep you aware of that teenager in all of us, really. That's seeking so hard to 
to come of age. You know, we all had to do that. What do you mean tolerant of mess? Tolerant of mess. Like in think about the movie Goonies, like there's this tolerance for mistakes. And like I, we were talking about earlier of this tolerance for experiment and mm-hmm. failure and reinventing yourself. And um, there's not a lot of like there's less shame. Uh, we're, you know, as adults, you're sort of like embarrassed because you didn't succeed or you're not. Whereas for teens, they have, I feel like they have this wide open space to be a little messier in their relationships and their, in their language and their experiences. And so they just, they just sort of shrug a little bit more. I know that it's a hard time to be a teen. I know there's a lot of anxiety and mental health issues, but partly I think it's because adults expect them not to be as messy, you yeah. know, and I think for for them when they're just that was a great part of coming of age when we did because we had this whole sort of secret life away from adults. Yes, for sure. Yeah, where they didn't yeah. know, and then that's what's true in Goonies too. Like they didn't know what was. Did your, did your mom or dad even know where you were or what you were doing? My parents they thought they did. <laughs> yeah, but they, in reality, we were living this whole life they didn't even know. Whereas now, you know, your parents know so much about what you're doing that you have all this these parental eyes and expectations and the rules of parent of adult life are on the adolescent life because all those adult eyes are on them. So I don't know. I think a little secrecy in a teen's life goes a long way. Yeah. And I mean, I never thought of, but like you can track your teen with, with their phone and, you know, I mean, when we were kids, it was like, yeah, I'm going to be at Scott's house. (laughs) That's right. And I know on the flip side, you know, when someone called the house, my mom would pick up and say, Oh, where is me? Dolly? Oh, she has gone shopping for her new underwear. <laughs> like, reveal all of my friends would be like next day, like, oh, how's the how's shopping trip? Yeah, so the, there was there was um there was that. There was inappropriate contact with my mom and my friends. But yeah, it's different now. I think and I think staying aware of how different it is is important for us as adults so that we can, you know, not project our own experiences on them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I think it was like George Carlin said that kids are like overscheduled. He's like, you know, mm. you know, when he's like, you know, when I was a kid, you like it seemed boring. But the time you'd be like laying around daydreaming or, you know, just out walking around, wasting time, hanging out with your yeah. friends. You that know, is the best incubator for creativity. I try to put that in my own life now. I really try to have a lot of space and time where I can be bored or not scheduled because because and that means saying no to a lot of things um and i think that's one of the hardest things is realizing that you want to guard that time of boredom Mm -hmm. because right now you know like unless you're in the shower or taking a long walk without my phone there's not a lot of spaces where i can just have that time i used to have when i was a kid that where your mind can wander and and just go without any without any sort of yeah just let your mind just roam freely you have to create you have to be really disciplined to create that space in your life now yeah i'm not so good at that (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny because some of those old practices from you know like sabbath you know putting down your phone Mm -hmm. once a week uh fasts um i try to do a sabbath and and i don't put my phone on my nightstand or anything like that. So I try to do some of those disciplines that helps guard my time of boredom slash creativity. I yeah. take retreats. I go by myself on retreats. And I don't leave my phone in the car. 
Those kind I hear, of things. I, I, I know. I know quite a few writers that do that sort of thing. It, that seems to be well. I'm trying to think if I know any artists that do that. Just like uh, a friend of mine um, at COVID got laid off, and he was a writer, and he went to Spain for like a month and just got like an Airbnb, and he's oh, like, "I'm just going to oh, write." That sounds and, amazing. Yeah, and his, and his wife was like, "Yeah, cool, go." Wow. Well, yeah, it's funny because the because through the I'm seeing musicians come out with new albums now like even just taylor swift's new album that came was written during her her time in the pandemic and other people who are dropping albums there is a deeper kind of creativity to this the work that's emerging out of the pandemic uh which i expected but it's really kind of thrilling to see that people who who normally were so busy and had all this had to be on the road marketing blah blah blah, they had space and time to be creative and in a couple of years and i think we're really going to reap the benefits of that in their art yeah, it, it, it was a really interesting time because uh, we like recorded a ton of podcasts because no one was doing anything. And it almost was an even split of people who some people found that being like, oh, I have all this time and I'm going to go to the studio or I'm going to you know, sit at my computer and write every day. And you know, I even started like dabbling in because I always come up with story ideas, but I'm not a good writer. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to write something. And um but a lot of other people were just like in dark places where they're like, I don't have that kind of creative, you know, energy, whether they, you know, get that energy from like hanging out with people or, or, or what was like really sapping it out of them. But it was a really interesting time. And I, I, yeah. I was very curious to see what was going to be coming out, you know. Right. And I always I feel like the dark times, too, in the artistic life, you know, eventually if you can recover get your hand back on the paintbrush or the keyboard or whatever, that those dark times inform the art as well. Right. Because oh, for sure. Yeah. You had to, we had to reflect on our mortality, but to reflect on our, it was a time of suffering. And I think suffering, you know, if you look back in history, a lot of the great art came from times where people went through dark times of suffering, even communal times together, whether it be the Russian literature or um, yeah, there's, so I, I have a feeling it'll pay off in the long run in our art even if there are those people who didn't create during that time, it'll yeah. still inform their their art. Oh, I think so for sure. And um, it, it, it there is something, you know, I've always said, it's like, I don't know whether it's like the darkness breeds creativity or the other way around. Um, because there's something about like trying to really struggle and, and understand. I feel like a lot of creativity is like understanding yourself and being like really honest and, it kind of makes you take a different look at things that, yeah. 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 It's that uh, whole dilemma of the artistic temperament and sensibility that feels things so deeply. Mm -hmm. And so then you can really suffer deeply or you can have these great highs and lows. And so then, you know, you're tempted to moderate with some sort of numbing agent or, or medication, which is perfectly valid. Yeah. And my, but then you're, then you feel like, well, I'm not going to get those, highs and not gonna experience the depths of the lows and how is that going to shape my art if i'm medicated or i'm turning to substances whether it's you know so you always have that question about how it how much can you tolerate of those highs and lows with without exploding and yet but then you don't want to just be like hmm, you know where you don't really right. feel anything that doesn't make you create things that help other people to feel things so 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance for sure. But I'm so grateful for medication because I know it's helped many of my friends oh, um, yeah. not have those deep lows that take them fully out of the, fully out of the creative game. So, yeah. So a, yeah, go ahead. Uh, wrapping back to your book a little bit, because we're kind of here to talk about that. Yeah. Um, you were talking about a couple of times referencing that, you know, there's aspects of your character or yourself in your character. Is that like a, a standard for you? Like, can you all, is that part of your writing? Like you have to have that connection to that character in order to write? Or? Yeah. It's like, it's the narcissistic part of being a writer. <laughs> I, everyone is me. Every yeah. character. Yeah, I think that there has to be some connection, you know, with the character. And I know that we're focused right now on identity as the connection, like your your cultural identity or your but there's something deeper. It's whether it's like some struggle with some vice or uh or some some virtue that you're trying to there has to be some connection between your life and the character's life. And so with Naima and the Rickshaw Girl, you know, there is that dilemma of her wanting to do her art. And yet also caring deeply about her family. And I definitely have that. We've talked about that, but that that being caught in and also the her idea that her gender limits her. Um that was where I was growing up. You know, I was thankfully my parents, they left the villages of India and Bangladesh. And they um even though there was a grief, they didn't have a son they gave us their best shot to become everything we could be. Um, and that I'm always so grateful for. So, so yeah, there's definitely parts of her and, uh, you know, that sometimes wondering what would it be like to have the opportunities and privileges of another identity, whether it be male or whatever, is something I think about. I think about when I walk in a room and I'm a Brown woman and I know that that's, that's the body I'm in. And so I'll be perceived like that. What would it be like to come in different in a different casement or a different how would that be? So she's thinking about that in the story. And not not so much as an issue of gender as it's expressed in American culture today, but as an expression of power. Not an expression of you know who you are, um who your what your identity is just because it's coming from within. It's more the power of the gender as it interacts with society and any economy that I'm exploring in that, in that story. It's a small, slim story. Rickshaw girl, you can pick it up and read it with a third grader. Yeah. But I try to put in my stories, I try to put a lot of threads of justice and big questions. And, um, and that book, I wrote it. I, I'll tell you, and it was rejected, not 23 times, like my second novel, but maybe 14 times, mm-hmm. 15 times. And um, I was sitting, my second novel had come out and I was sitting at an American library association conference where I was supposed to be signing books, my second novel. And I was at a table with authors on either side of me. And these other authors were really big names, right? So I had nobody in my signing line. And those two authors had these lines that were just long people. And so it's one of those humiliating moments in the artist's life where you think, okay. So I pulled out my manuscript of Rickshaw Girl to work on it. And then this red-haired woman from one of the lines caught my eye. And she came out of the line and she said, Hey, what do you, you know, oh, I read Monsoon Summer, which was my second book. Can you tell me about what you're working on? And I had the manuscript right there. And I said, well, I'm working on this manuscript about a girl driving, wanting to drive her dad's rickshaw. She's an artist. And she said, you know, I'm, that intrigues me. I'm an editor at Charles Bridge. Could you send it to me? And that's how the book got published from that moment of deep humiliation. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's just like showing up and 
doors sometimes open. I was so, and that book's been translated into nine languages. It's been made into a stage play. It's been it's my best selling book by far. I think it's sold like almost four hundred thousand copies. Wow, that's amazing. Hall. And so it's, and now it's made into a film, it's reaching cultures. And it, to me, that's so amazing. Cause I think I, I just really didn't think the book was, the story was going to come and see the light of day. And yet here it's got, here I have a little rickshaw, which your listeners can't, can't to see, but it's a little rickshaw given to me by the producer. Um, and I always think, wow, she just pedaled along. She kept going. Yeah. And the book, the book had it, had that same kind of feel. Cause it came out in 2007. And what is it now? 2023. Yeah. People are watching the movie version of it and it's still selling. And I still get notes from kids saying, I loved Naima. She's my favorite character. And and that that's just so that's so thrilling for me to know that it's really had, cool. had a long life. Yeah. It, and it's it's I love that it came out of that kind of you know, uh, you said I don't want to misquote you, but you said it's kind of like embarrassing where you didn't have humiliating. Humiliating—that yeah. was the word you were using. But it—it's—it is so much of what I experience as success in life comes from those moments where someone's just like, "Hey, you know, it'd be cool," and you're like, "Yeah, cool. Let's let's give it a try." And they don't always work. Some of them are downright terrible. <laughs> but it, it's just this kind of—I think if you have that. You know, I'm here, put myself out there. I'm going to use my time to work on my manuscript because, you know, no one's in my line. It's it's like that mentality of I'm here and waiting. And when the opportunity comes by, you, you take it. Yeah, that's that's I think that's that just show up and 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 um, champion your own work. You know, I feel like I used to just to be aware that the work is the important thing and that your connection to the work matters and keep going with that with that relationship between you and your work it's it's challenging though because it's it's just really i've taken i think most of my career has been a lot of knocks as all of us who've been doing this for any length of time there's been lots of bad reviews and rejections and we've all had our fair share so i guess the question is how much do you love this work and how much were you designed to do this is this the way you're going to serve the planet and if you can say yes to that question you can just keep showing up you and the work and and eventually you know hopefully It'll stop. There'll be some times where you can rejoice that more people are receiving your art than, you know, just your 22 people in your mom's Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a little bit about kind of like learning your your own patterns and whatnot. Like I've had plenty of failures, but, um, you know, any event that we run, my my business partner always gives me a hard time because he'd be like, yep quarter of it's time for Andy to have a panic attack and I'm walking around be like where is everybody why aren't they here yet um and it's like clockwork and so now it's kind of like I'll I'll start to feel like that kind of anxiety and I'll be like I'm just gonna walk outside for a bit and you know take those breaths yeah go clear my head and everything's under control and you know kind of you know the way we run things is like at that point I think that the thing that makes me the most panicky is I know at that point there's nothing I can do but isn't that the most freeing moment? No. <laughs> it's the most panicky moment. Because it hasn't started. So I can't see how it's going to turn out. Oh. But there's really nothing that I can do to change anything at that point. So I kind of get that this. To like, me sounds like the surrender moment where you said, I've done the best I can. Yeah. If people show up, 
you know, like it's like at some point you sort of just have to surrender after you've tried as hard as you can, right? Yeah, that usually takes me about like ten minutes in. In but like oh, the fi- but the like the fifteen minutes before is usually when I'm walking around. That's like, high panic. Yeah, yeah, I'm an unpleasant person to be around at that time. <laughs> I get it. Right. Well, I think it's because we care so much. You know, you created this thing and it's not just like you don't want to be like Emily Dickinson, like writing these poetry and then like dying and nobody gets you don't get to connect your work to the person. Maybe you do want to be like Emily Dickinson, but I want to connect. I want my art to mean something to the people receiving it. You know, it's that. So you want that so much that you that's why the anxiety is so high. Anytime anxiety is high, it's because you care so deeply. But yeah, it's definitely (laughs) it's not for people with. You have to have some nerves of steel in, in, in the artistic life. Yeah, and and you have to you have to learn the difference between someone giving you good critical advice and someone just like dunking on you. Oh, the critiques! Yeah, yeah. we have we have Goodreads in the uh, writing world. You know where the review site that's just brutal it's brutal oh, you, never, you just don't go there unless you are ready to unless you're feeling like you've had a nice cup of coffee or glass of wine or whatever your substance is yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't usually go there yeah it's hard to take those critiques it's hard to know can i take this and make my craft better or is it just someone who's got some issue with this thing and that's their problem bye bye see right. you yeah and it's that that fine line between you can't take every critique because then it's like it's not even your work anymore it's like trying to like pick out like what's the good advice that i should follow and what's the stuff that i should ignore and yeah it, it's um not easy well, and i think incubating the work is really important i don't let anyone read what i'm working on or even talk about it much um until it's really in a much more advanced form if it's just being if it's something that's come to me when i'm hiking in the hills and i've got this idea I sit, let it sit inside me for a long time because if it goes out to someone else, then I do care what people think. So mm-hmm. I, the idea itself needs some time just to be with me and the idea and the story. And then eventually I will, you know, my agent will look at it, but I'm still pretty private about it until, you know, it goes, goes to press. And then the reviewers start to see it. And then I'm like, Oh gosh, I want to go hide somewhere. But... <laughs> yeah. I didn't like you either. <laughs> um, yeah, I have artist friends that um, will take commissions and people will be like, oh, can you send me photos? And they're like, no, like you'll see it when it's done. That's good. I'm glad that's that's part of the that's part of the one of the best practices of being an artist is being able to say no, no to, you know, I don't want to I, I need more, you know, time around this space. No, I'm not going to share it. No, I'm not going to take that. If you can say no, that's a really good practice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know. When you give it to them and it's done, they're going to like it just as much. And you're not going to run into the, well, can you move their arm this way and do that? And you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. you know. And the movie now, the movie's getting uh, reviews, you know, because it's being seen by a lot of people now. So it's getting, um, it's it's interesting to read the movie reviews because I'm sort of one step removed. I didn't write the screenplay. Right. They use my story. And so I'm cheering hard for the people that were part of the movie. So I'm more maternal about those reviews than I am about my own work because I'm like, those guys worked hard to make this movie. You, you, you know, I'm getting all defensive about that that movie in yeah. a way that I don't do about my own work because it's uh, I'm just so cheering hard for them. And it's it's so great to see this little movie made in Bangladesh, all by Bangladeshis, all um, you know, Bangladeshi screenwriter, director, artist, and to see it being received here in the States. It's the first time it's been a 
Bangladeshi movie that's actually being received by American audiences. And they're so excited and thrilled and proud that their art is the, the not just the art of the movie, but the folk art of the rickshaw painting. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, they're so proud of it. And so I so want it to succeed because, uh, you know, it's kind of my, my giving back to the culture of my origin, you know, to see that if the movie flies, I'll be so thrilled for them. So, yeah, it, I never, it, it, does. Ever, it looks so great. It's it really a beautiful does. movie. Yeah. So many colors. They used all of their Bengali sensibility of color and music and feeling, you know, Bengalis, they feel things and they're not ashamed of it. So there's a lot of pathos in the movie. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful. It's when the, you never dream that one of your stories is going to be fully made into a movie. When Eric Adams, the producer bought the option. I thought, yeah, right. You know, it's gonna. Yeah. Good luck raising the money to make this thing, this little book, into a movie. And he did. He it was an act of love for him and his wife. They just wanted to see it made, and they worked with Bangladeshis and they honor the culture. It's really a beautiful tribute to the Bangladeshi culture. So, I'm really proud of it, and I hope that your listeners get a chance to see it. They can they can find out more about it at rickshawgirlmovie.com, and um, you know, support the movie makers. In Bangladesh. See, I'm such an egomaniac that I'd read the reviews and all the good ones. I'd be like, that's me. That's me. That Oh, the bad one. That's the movie. That's. (laughs) Hey, that's an idea. (laughs) I'm really protective of them. I want them to, because they work so, it's a whole crew. And there's the cinematographers and the costume designers and the artists and the guy who actually did the rickshaw painting. And there's just so much craft. And it's such a community of craftsmen, craftspeople that contributed that. I just, I'm sort of like the auntie going, come on, movie. You know, I, I'm going to really, start a fan group with 22 people. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's, I've become that person. I've become yeah. my mom. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on next? Um, well, I have books coming out, two books coming out this year. I have a book, I, as I said, a lot of my books explore justice issues because I studied political science, public policy uh, in college. So this one, um, so Rickshaw Girls about microcredit and mm-hmm. loans, how loans for girls and businesses can change the world, really, if you give them access to loans. Um, and this one is a book about affordable housing, but it's oh. a novel and it's set in California where I yeah. live. And, you know, our housing situation out here is terrible. So where are you? Go- where are you? Uh, I'm located in Plymouth, Mass. I am sitting. Oh, in- oh, my goodness. I lived in Newton for 12 years. Oh, so did you? I'm- yeah. Oh, I'm sitting literally like. No, maybe a hundred yards from the Mayflower. Oh, nice! Yeah. Oh, I just so housing is a huge yeah. problem. Right, I remember in the Boston area the same thing. So this little girl, the the house across the street is getting demolished, and she loves going there because she writes. Mm-hmm. So uh, she goes secretly to this beautiful orchard and house, and now she's finding out it's getting demolished, and so she's getting she starts to get involved in all the town politics to see she can save the house because that's her writing space. And I got to use poetry that I wrote when I was 11. I put it in my diaries and I put it. So that book's coming out. It's called Hope in the Valley, July, 2023. And then I have a picture book, a Christmas picture book that's coming out in September. So that's this year. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's such, I'm seeing more and more, um, I guess interest is the right word, but um, so Plymouth is, is a very wealthy community and they're in this issue and the Cape Cod has gone, gone through the same thing where they're pricing their workers out of the area. And, you know, so there's issues where there's not enough people for jobs because there's no one, 
Where do the teachers live? Where do the nurses yeah. live? Where do the police? Not even we're not talking even talking about low lowest income. We're talking about middle income people getting priced. Right. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm looking at in this book. And I mean, it sounds kind of funny, like a children's novel about affordable housing. But most yeah, it is, that's a weird, <laughs> weird. Guy. You know, you have to read the story, and so you have, hopefully have a character, my character Pandita. So it's a personal story because it's a coming of age, very mm-hmm. similar to mine. It's set in 1980 in Silicon Valley, which used to be called the Valley of Heart's Delight because it was all orchards, you know. So I. Oh, okay at that time and so it's a very personal story but for me it always has to have some sort of a justice just a nuanced justice question i wrote a picture book about the border wall between san diego and tijuana yeah i i'm not writing about fluffy bunnies i'm not today <laughs> bunnies i may get to a fluffy bunny book at some point but yeah but it's interesting and i i think that kind of like wraps back to i think too many people either shelter their kids or don't think those stuff affects their kids. You know, it's like if there's housing instability, it's like, it's going to affect the kids just as much, if not more, because they're the ones who are going to be at school trying to make new friends at the hardest time in their life to kind of learn to socialize. And, you know, all that stuff matters to them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think I, I was a kid when I was nine, I cared about hunger and poverty. And I believe kids can have, they have that, they have a heart for justice. I know they do because I've seen them get passionate and riled up about all kinds of things. Yeah. And- I mean, I remember um, it's one of the proudest moments uh, I was ever of my, one of the moments I was ever most proud of my children. Um, so my kids are about two years apart. So my son was like losing the last of his baby teeth and my youngest was just starting to lose their teeth. And uh, I can't remember which. Oh, Zoe had lost a tooth. And so I'm divorced dad. So I had him on the weekend and we we're kind of like walking downtown and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, what are you going to spend your tooth fairy money on? And she's like, oh, I donated it to cancer research. And I'm like, what? And she's like, me and Liam have donated all our tooth money to cancer research. And I'm like, we're getting, we're all getting ice cream. Like, it just like, I'm like, I don't know where they got that. I'm not that nice. I don't know. And it was just like, they're so, they were so sweet and so genuine. It's because my ex-wife lost a, a friend to, to cancer and, you know, they were seeing people raise money and they figured that's how they could help out. And it's just the sweetest thing. And I'm like, all right. That's, that's, a, that's really, yeah. Those, those little things tell so much about what's really go- the character of a child, right? Yeah. That's- They're a little more mouthy and sarcastic now, but. <laughs> As it should be. As yeah. it should be. They're finding their voice. They're still so. sweet underneath. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Matali, tell me again, where can people go to check out your book and the movie? Okay. Well, uh, rickshawgirlmovie.com is the movie and they can find it on Amazon prime or Apple TV. You can get it at libraries through hoopla and canopy and um, my book is on my website, MitaliPerkins.com. I'm the only Mitali Perkins on earth, Andy. There's no other combination. Of that. So if you Google no, me. I was going to say, that can't be true. I'm like, wait, no, Mr. probably. <laughs> and you'll see that Mitali, M-I-T-A-L-I and Perkins yeah. do not combine in any other human being. So you can find me all over. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm not on TikTok, but I. Should uh, be. That's what everyone's telling me. I know. I know. Well, I figured the best reels from TikTok come over to my Instagram and I see them there. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so you can find MitaliPerkins.com. All my books are there and uh, love to talk to other creatives and um, find some like-minded people who care about art and serving the planet the way that I 
try to. That's awesome, Tally. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, anytime you have something to promote, please feel free to reach out. Oh, we'll that's back so on. nice. Appreciate yeah. it. Enjoy the snow. Enjoy the shoveling. <laughs> um, It hasn't been too bad. Like it snowed yeah, last night, but it was yeah. only like a couple of inches and then it like ended in rain. So it was pretty much. Well, you're co- closer to the coast than yeah. Yeah, I just remember shoveling so much. And now I'm in California. <laughs> Where, when when did you live out here? Uh, we were there till 2013, so 13. Oh, years. you had some. Oh, were you here for? We had the, some bad snows, big snows. Trying to remember, like we had that really bad February, like we yes, had, like, the were... worst winter ever, but it only snowed in February. I just ate my pain through all those winters. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It takes a different breed to like it, but. Yeah, good to meet you, and thank you again for having having me on the show. And and uh, we'll we'll hopefully meet again someday. Absolutely, thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners. We'll catch you guys again next week. And thanks for checking out the show today, listeners. Uh, if you enjoyed the content today, you can go over to patreon.com slash inebriart to support the show. You can join over there for just a few dollars a month and help us provide this fun content that you just checked out. You can also email us at inebriart.com with your questions, complaints, and concerns, or you can find us on all social medias at inebriart or at inebriart6 on Instagram. And also don't forget to check out our other shows, Bar Talk Podcast, Old Colony Cast, Inebriart, and all the other shows on the Inebriart Network, which you can find at inebriart.com. Thanks again for listening.